Hello, I'm Dr Kat Arney. This podcast is part of a mini-series of interviews with speakers from the 2022 Annual Conference of the Adelphi Genetics Forum, a learned society that aims to promote research and discussion concerning the scientific understanding of human heredity. Formerly known as the Galton Institute, and before that, the Eugenics Education Society, the society has changed its name to the Adelphi Genetics Forum to firmly reject and distance itself from the discredited and damaging ideas of its namesake, Francis Galton, widely viewed as the founder of eugenics. This year's conference, titled Living with the Eugenic Past, brought together expert speakers to grapple with the problem of how best to tackle the subject of eugenics. What are the demands of justice when it comes to the victims of eugenics? How should universities and other institutions involved in eugenics deal responsibly with that involvement? And can present-day biology education and research be improved to help safeguard the future from the mistakes of the past? Elaine Riddick A black woman who grew up in North Carolina was kidnapped and raped and became pregnant at the age of just 13. Nine months later, in 1968, she was forcibly sterilised by the state without her knowledge during the process of having her son, Tony, now a successful businessman. She was not the only one. Tens of thousands of people were sterilised in the US as a result of eugenic policies in the decades following the Second World War. Today, Elaine is a steadfast campaigner for women's rights and is the executive director of the Rebecca Project for Justice, dedicated to protecting life, dignity and freedom for people in the US and Africa. I asked her to share her story. Well, my story is my mother was an alcoholic. My father was shell-shot, suffering from PTSD My mother was in prison, so the state decided to take my siblings and I away from my mother, and they put five of my siblings in an orphanage. My older sister and I went to live with my grandmother, and from there, you know, I became a rape victim, a rape survivor. I became pregnant from the rape, and I carried my son for nine months, but prior to that, uh, when the state found out that I was pregnant, they coerced my grandmother into signing a paper to have me sterilized. That was after my being raped. Then my grandmother signed the paper. She was not educated. She didn't even get out to first grade. So she couldn't, didn't understand what sterilization was, but all I know is that she was coerced, threatened, and said that if you don't sign these papers, we're gonna stop your food supplements. Meaning, you know, her welfare of surplus foods. So my grandmother had 15 other children living in a two-bedroom house, so she went on and signed the papers to help me sterilize without knowing what she was doing. So the social worker took the papers to Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, to the eugenics board in North Carolina, where they agreed that I should become sterilized. Mind you, they had never tested me for sterilization purposes. They just said that I was feeble-minded 
And by my being feeble-minded, they suggest sterilization. What happened after that? You're heavily pregnant at this time. What happened? Well, I was heavily pregnant. And when I went into the hospital to have my son, you know, they sterilized me. They brought my son here by cesarean birth. And while they had me opened up, after giving birth to my son, they sterilized me at the same time. I didn't know that I was sterilized. All I know is that I was told that I fell into a coma. I woke up a week later to find my stomach bandaged. I didn't even know until I was 19 years old. Five years later, I get married and I wanted to start a family. Go to the doctor. Before I got married, all I knew was that I was constantly sick, constantly hemorrhaging. I mean, this is dealing with my hormones, constantly passing out, constantly being hospitalized because my body was so young. I didn't know this. I didn't know what to do to make myself feel better because I was told that they had so severely damaged the inside of my body. They had, um, what, what was the word? They had butchered me. That's the word the doctor used. The doctor said I was butchered. Butchered? What do you mean butchered? So they took pictures of my inside, and that's what they told me, that I was sterilized and I was severely butchered. So when I found that out, I tried to fix it because, you know, it's something that I thought I could fix. You know, I couldn't fix it. The doctors couldn't fix it. They tried to put a plastic tube inside of me so I could have a baby. I just wanted them to fix me. So anyway, um, I ended up wanting to know what happened to me. Why did they do that to me? What was the journey then to finding out what had happened? Well, after the doctor had told me that I had been butchered, my sister got in touch, my older sister got in touch with American Civil Liberties and got me in touch with them and to tell my story because I didn't understand. So American Civil Liberties talked to the doctor and the doctor told them what happened. So they got in touch with the state of North Carolina. And sure enough, they had found my records, which were archived and put up in somewhere in boxes, hidden. And they came across my uh, sterilization records. And from then on, I decided to sue the state of North Carolina for a million dollars. And North Carolina, when we went to court, North Carolina said that they didn't violate my civil liberties. Wow. Yeah, they said that, which I couldn't understand. Why would they say I'm a human being? You sterilized me. You took away my reproductive health. Why would you say that you didn't violate me? And what was their reply to that? What was their justification? Uh, their justification was that I was feeble-minded. And so then I had to walk around the world and I had to pretend that, you know, um, that I was okay, but I wasn't okay. You know, I couldn't cry or, um, I just had to live with that 
until I was able to accept what they had done to me. And um, I still haven't accepted it because I feel like the world, though, and they, they uh, probably see me like something is wrong with me, but it's not, you know, and uh, I suffered a lot. What was the next step then in trying to seek some justice for what had happened to you? Well, once the state of North Carolina dismissed my case, I went as far as the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court refused to hear my case. And that made me feel bad. So anyway, years go by and years go by. So I was actually contacted by um, this journalist, John Rayleigh and Representative Larry Wumble in 2002. And um, I started pursuing this case in uh, 1971, 72. And um, so they gave me a call in 2002 and they said, asked me if that was my name and I said yes. And they said that they had found some records in uh, North Carolina State Building that was hidden in an archive under lock and key. So they asked for an interview, and I gave them the interview. And from there, things just started taking off. John Rayleigh worked with the Winston-Salem Journal. Larry Wumble was a state representative for the state of North Carolina. We did not have an attorney. We got the state legislators board to every meeting they had to meet with us and to figure out what they was going to say. So eventually they decided after so many years, and this is uh, around 2007 or nine or something like that, they decided to create a um, task force to see if North Carolina had violated me. And the task force came back and said yes. And so then what did you do with that information? So the task force got sit together and they decided that um, as far as compensation, first they said $10,000 a piece. And I'm like, you know, $10,000, this is all I'm worth. And then they came up with another figure, 25,000, no way. And then they came up with another figure, a third figure, which was $50,000. And what I told them is that no amount of money could fix me. It wasn't the money, it wasn't the apology, it was the principle and what you did to me and how, what I had to live with all of my life. You know, so it wasn't about the amounts of money, it was the idea that you could violate my human rights like this. You could violate a person, a child, you know, that had no idea what was going on. I should not have been punished for the crimes of my parents. Regardless, you know, my mother, she was an alcoholic, sure. I wasn't an alcoholic at that time. You know, why punish me for something that I didn't do? This conference is all about the legacy of eugenics. And when we hear the word eugenics, we often think of the atrocities that were committed by the Nazis and think maybe that, that's the thing. How did it feel when you realized that the policies that had 
treated you so horrifically were were eugenics? Well, I felt uh, how I felt was that we could have such evil people in the world that could even do another human being like this. These are evil people that cares nothing about human dignity or human life. You know, these people here are responsible for so many millions of deaths around the world. The more I learn about eugenics, the more I am unhappy with what they did or with their science or with their uh, racism. You know, that's what it is. You know, everybody is entitled to a good quality of life. In the state of North Carolina, North Carolina itself sterilized 7,600 people. Little boys and girls, six, seven, eight, and nine years old, one five-year-old. There's 32 states within the United States that sterilize its citizens. 32, California did about 40,000 people. You know, the doctors say because you're a ward of the state that, you know, we can do whatever we want to do with you. Sure, I was a ward of the state, but I was still with my grandmother. I hadn't did anything wrong. I was a victim of rape. But I thank God today that my son is alive. He didn't ask to come here, but I thank God that I had him. I thank God that he's here, and I thank God that I have a grandson. And, um, you know, the eugenics program, and like they said to me, my problem was not that I was feeble-minded. It was because it was environmental. It's incredibly clear talking to you. There is nothing feeble-minded about you at all. And what's your hope for the future? This conference is all about tackling the eugenic past. So what's your hope to go forward? Well, my hope is to make sure that this don't happen to other children. And that's why I want to open up the Elaine Riddick Sanctuary Shelter so I can house and I'm not talking about a little apartment or a little home or a five or 10 bedroom house. I wanna get a hotel in every state, every country, and I wanna get hotels where I can convert them into homes, shelters for youth at risk, abandoned babies, chemically dependent children, homeless mother with children, and um, young pregnant females and children sold into human trafficking. What I want to do is I want to make sure that what happened to me don't happen to them. And I want to make sure that I help them to become productive members of society where they can go out there and take care of themselves, whether you're single, with child, sold in human trafficking, or, you know, you, I just want to teach you how to bond with your children and bond with your babies. And then I want to open up a, a senior citizen homes also because even though we become old, you know, and people seem to turn their back on us, we still need care and love. And I want to do that. I am a human rights activist, but I'm a people person first. And that's not for children, it's for all people. It's not for color, race, have nothing to do with it. I want to work with the classes of people that need me. Many thanks to Elaine Riddick. And you can find out more about her work at the Rebecca Project for Justice at rebeccaprojectjustice.org.
You can find out more about the Adelphi Genetics Forum, including their grants, awards and publications, at adelphigenetics.org. You can check out the rest of this series on the Genetics Unzipped podcast feed. Just search for Genetics Unzipped on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This series was produced by the team at First Create the Media. That's Katani, Sally LePage and Emma Werner, with help from Ed Prosser and Frankie Pike. Our music is Drops of H2O by Jay Lang, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>